I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group. You're listening to Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. When I think about the relationship between money and power, I often recall a quote by a guy named Mark Hanna. He said once, only two things matter in politics, just two things. The first one is money. The second one I don't remember. Now, as relevant as that may seem to our current times, it was said more than 100 years ago in the midst of the McKinley-Bryan presidential campaign in 1896 in the United States. But there's another narrative, one where money isn't fragmented or atomized or a tool supplicating to the interests of a few. It's not the feckless banker trope. It's a version where money, now more than $41 trillion of global pension savings alone, has agency. A version capable of representing a force of positive social and environmental change. But despite that power, investors have long been left out of a dialogue traditionally occupied by states, NGOs, civil society, and corporations. But the public sector can't create change alone. The Paris Agreement in 2015 was a great example of this, of how the confluence of all these actors found enough common ground to begin addressing climate change on a global basis together. But how do you replicate that success beyond the issue of climate change? How can investors influence policies determining health outcomes, labor rights, or economic inequality? To understand this, it's worth looking at the United Nations-supported Principles for Responsible Investment, or PRI, a global force that has coalesced investor preferences. So I sat down with Fiona Reynolds, CEO of the PRI. It's fair to say that she's the doyen of the sustainable investment world, and an important role model, too. The PRI is an investor initiative in partnership with the UNEP Finance Initiative and the UN Global Compact. The PRI, representing over $80 trillion of assets, works with its international network of roughly 2,000 signatories to put the six principles of responsible investment into practice. Its goals are to understand the investment implications of environmental, social, and governance issues, and to support signatories in integrating these issues into investment and ownership decisions. So, get ready for the interview with Fiona, and welcome to Season 3 of Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future. We've got a great lineup of incredible interviews headed your way over the next six episodes. Welcome to the show, Fiona. Great to be here. Now, it's great to have you here. So, I want to start out with your backstory, which I find pretty interesting. Um, the fact that you came from Australia, focused on effectively local issues like compulsory pension contributions and social issues like gender diversity issues. What sort of brought you to the PRI to address things on a global scale? Sure. So I started working in the superannuation industry back in 1994 in Australia as a young 20-something. And it was a really new industry, which was fantastic because compulsory super only came into place in Australia in 1992. And then over a period of time, all employers had to start paying contributions on behalf of their workers. And what Australia did, thanks to really through the union movement, instead of just all of that money going into big existing, you know, wealth management arms of banks, etc., and creating individual products, it created some collective superannuation funds that have been that are jointly run by the unions and the employer groups. Extremely successful uh, that they've been in Australia. 
And one of the reasons that they're successful is because it puts members first, not profits first. They're all run on a not-for-profit basis and um, outperform all of those that are in the retail sector. And so I started working in that sector in, as I said, in 1992. And to me, it was the first time I've ever worked in something where you could really see that it was something for the benefit of everyone. Because before that in Australia, what you tended to happen was everyone who was in a really high paid management role somewhere got some sort of pension. And if you worked in the public service, you got a pension. But the rest of us, the average everyday worker didn't get anything. So you were left to retire on the age pension. So this was something designed to give people more money to retire on. And as I was working in the industry, it also became clear that all of this money was going to be collected in these vehicles and money has power. And so that on behalf of workers, we could start using some of that power with corporations to be able to make and bring about change, particularly around environmental issues, social issues, governance issues. It's taken a while because you start off a system and there's not a lot of money in it. Now in Australia, there's only 20-odd million people and the superannuation sector will soon have $3 trillion in it. It's bigger than Australia's GDP. And Australian superannuation funds are also overweight Australian businesses. So they can start to shape change. So I like to see it as um, activism, except that you follow the money. So other people do it other ways. I think you follow the money Mm -hmm. and money you can bring about change. Which brings us to the PRI. So listeners to this podcast have doubtless heard me talk about the PRI on many, many episodes. But for those who haven't, um, could you talk about what is so special about the PRI? Why does it make a difference if you're an investor to become a signatory to the PRI? Well, I think that the PRI is really the global home of responsible investment. And responsible investment is something that's not particularly old. So the PRI itself has only just turned 12. So we've really brought together investors from around the world to start thinking about how can we be better investors? How can we actually use the money that we've got to still bring about and get great returns, but also do some good in the world as well? And at a bare minimum, not to do any harm, because investors can do harm as well. And how do we meet the expectations of beneficiaries as well? I think about when you think about beneficiaries, you can't just think about their retirement income. You also have to think about the world into which they retire. And you've got a role in that as an investor, thinking about that world and how you invest has an impact on that world. So the Pair Eyes, I think, really been a place where people have come together, developed practice, learnt together. Investors have learnt together, have have brought practice forward and continue to go deeper and deeper into responsible investment. So I think it's, you know, with the PRI being formed, it's the first time that there was ever a global concerted effort to address this issue and address the issue of sustainability from the investment lens. Mm. I think the UN had addressed it a lot from what are you doing with government, civil society, even with corporations, but investors were left out. And to solve world problems, let's face it, you need money and you need investment and public sector is not going to be able to do it alone. You need private sector investment. And of course, investors primarily have to make returns. But as I said, you can do both. It's interesting because we've seen over the last decade, uh, just the 
the emergence of a lot of either issue-specific, sometimes around governance, sometimes around climate change, or maybe regional initiatives or investor groups. Um, but it sounds like these issues, you know, the redefinition of fiduciary duty, um, not just in one country, but in many countries, um, makes it more of a global issue, which means that a platform like PRI is probably better suited to address it. If you think about investors, most, most investors if not all, but there's a few who don't, invest globally. They don't just invest in the country that they're in. So therefore you need global norms, really, and global ways of doing things. Corporations that you invest in are multinationals. They're global as well. You can't have everybody, all of these investors in different countries, asking you the different ways to do things. How do you make change that way if every, everyone's got a million and one asks for you? So I think global norms are really important, but then you can recognise regional differences as well in terms of different countries might have different priorities. If I'm in South Africa, for example, a real priority is black empowerment and how do you get the community that's been left behind and hasn't had jobs, etc. How do you deal with that? That's obviously a very valid issue in South Africa. Uh, in other countries, though, it'll be different issues that they want to prioritise. And of course, you've got to work within different regulatory environments as well. So that's why I think there are regional groups and they've got a role to play as well. But I think PRI's got a significant role to play in setting some of the best practice and standards that people then can adapt to their country. Why do you think it's so important now? And I guess I want to touch on uh, an article that you'd actually penned earlier this week uh, for Financial News. And you recognize that a lot is happening. There's almost a sea change in shareholder resolutions and filings. Uh, in fact, uh, we did a podcast with uh, church commissioners for England um, talking about how they engaged with ExxonMobil over two years, uh, which was just extraordinary. Um, but you make this interesting point that it's, it began with climate issues, but it's now broadening out to include a lot of social issues, human rights, etc. Can you talk about that? Sure. So I think that as there's more and more capital that are that is in pension funds around the world, and as I said, it takes time to really um, build up that capital, then those pension funds are starting to work more collaboratively together and they're starting to exercise their voice more. They want to do the right thing on behalf of their beneficiaries and they want to make sure that companies know their expectations and they want to bring about change because let's face it, if you're a if you're a very large investor, you don't want to be a day trader, you don't want to be trading every day, you actually want to invest in companies that are good companies that are going to continue to develop and you can keep investing them in the long term. So you've got a vested interest in making sure that a, a company, for example, is going to make the transition from a high carbon to a low carbon economy. You've got it's worth your time having that discussion so that the share price, the company doesn't fall apart because they're not making the changes that they need. We know that a company that's got happier employees and therefore good labour practices is a place that people want to work at and that they want to stay at. It's a better corporation. So these things are all just really good business sense. I think more and more investors understand that. And I think more and more are really trying to look at the long term instead of the short term, which 
really has been the trend of the past. I'm only thinking about today what the share price is going up or down today. I'm not really thinking about the corporation over the lifetime that I want to be invested in it. Mm. And as I always say, if I'm a young person and I'm joining a pension fund today, I might be 25, for example, just started work, I'm out of university. With longevity that we're seeing, with growing um, an ageing population, I'm probably going to be in that pension fund, you know, including my retirement years for about 70 years. So the idea that you would only think about what's happening in the world today when I'm not retiring for 50-odd years is a bit ridiculous. You really do have to think about the long term. And of course, there's a lot of short terms within a long term, but you need to understand the big trends that are happening um, in the world. And I think in some countries where it's been difficult to get corporations to sit down and talk, then shareholder resolutions is how you get them to take your issues seriously. And investors are starting to win now as well. They're starting to win things that they uh, put forward, as we've seen last year with Exxon and uh, Occidental. And I think this is um, going to be something that will happen more and more. I think it's a really good thing. What does it mean for PRI in the sense that the PRIs had, um, had an effort around collaboration, collaborative engagement with investors? Um, you know, on one hand, you've had investors, uh, asset owners, and managers that specialize in shareholder activism. But there's a, a large segment that are either passive um, or just don't have those kinds of capabilities. How can PRI continue to um, drive either initiatives, you know, be part of initiatives like the uh, Climate Action 100, or by themselves really help cohere, in a sense, investor preferences around uh, resolutions? Well, if you are an investor on your own and you're, you're trying to talk to a really, really large multinational company and say you're a small or even a large investor on your own, it's harder to get the company to take notice. But if you bring together a large collaboration and a large group of investors together as shareholders, then that's a lot more difficult for a company to ignore. So if you were talking about Climate Action 100 plus, so so far there's 300 investors involved in that. They represent 30 trillion in assets under management. This is a significant amount of capital invested in the 100 largest emitters in the world. Not only are you bringing together a big group, but they're also all talking to you about the same things. So you're clear about where all your major shareholders are expecting you to go. So Climate Action 100 Plus, for example, we're asking about emissions reductions. We're asking about the board. What, who have you got on the board and what's their skills? And are, are, have you got the right board with the right skills to actually make this huge transition? How are you going about implementing the TCFD recommendations? And so that makes it much easier for the investors, it makes it easier for companies. And there's a lot of time and effort that these take as well. So it's smart when you collaborate and you share the load. And I think that's a significant role that PRI plays. We do a lot of the research, the organising of the collaborative engagements. Um, we make sure that the questions are all framed. What's everybody doing? Who are the companies that we're going to talk to? And it just makes it efficient for everybody involved. 
I want to change lanes a little bit. Um, the PRI is an asset owner-led initiative. And because of that, you know, the board, um, a lot of the agenda is naturally asset owner-driven. Um, but you've seen a lot of growth come out of managers, out of uh, data providers, consultancies. Um, how do you manage, I guess, uh, what I imagine to be some sort of inherent tension behind the interests of asset owners and those of managers and, and the rest of the signatories? Well, there can be a tension. We have many, many more managers than we have asset owners, which kind of makes sense because if you're an asset owner, you might have 10, 20, 30 plus managers depending on how big you are and how many asset classes that you're in. But at the end of the day, for us at the PRI, asset owners really sit at the heart of all the work that we do because if managers are not being asked about these things, if managers, if there's no demand for responsible investment, then they're not going to create the products. They do what their clients are asking and where the trends are. So it's the asset owners who drive the market. And that's why they're important. They're really important to us. Sometimes there can be frustration from investment managers. And I try to say to them, them, well, the best thing that we can do for you is actually get this market moving so that you will get more money flowing into the, your products if you've got the right products or your managers, your managers who will have the right skills. And um, some of them don't get that, but a lot of them do. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good transition to the recent article uh, out by the Financial Times, where they point to the fact that uh, there are a number of laggard signatories um, who potentially might be delisted. Many of those happen to be managers. And, you know, by uh, so the extension of that argument is um, some of these managers might be, quote, gaming it. Um, I've got a view, which which I'd love to run past you. But, you know, I guess I think of that as an unfair argument in the sense that there's an academic um, named uh, Martha, Martha Finnemore, and she's uh, uh, she studies international relations. But she's done a lot of work around the life cycles of norms. And, and she makes this point that it takes a long time to establish a norm um, for people to adhere to and ultimately for it to be institutionalized. But what you want is critical mass. You know, you want to make it at the outset as inclusive as possible and then start to make the standards, the practices more and more rigorous because that's the means by which people improve. Would you say that that how do you think about that as sort of a counter argument to this this uh, what almost kind of read as a kind of a failing of the PRI, which I kind of took as an affront, to be honest? Well, thank you. Um, I think Martha's obviously a very wise woman and I need to go and read some of her I'll work. Send it to you. I'll yeah, send that, it to you. that will be great. So I think that's exactly right. I put it as in you can't ask people to run before they can walk. Responsible investment is still a relatively new concept. People are at different stages in different countries around the world. If we had set the bar so high that no one could meet that bar, or only a few could, then how would we have got this whole sector moving together and started? And we're still at the situation where you have got people who have been doing this for a while, but you've got new people who want to come into the responsible investment community, and they want to learn from other people. So again, if we set the bar so high that we discourage people from getting started with responsible investment, well, what will we have achieved? Our aim at the PRI is to mainstream responsible investment. 
We want to live in a day and see a day when you don't talk about responsible investment, that you will just talk about investment and or go without saying that it will be done in a responsible way. We're not there yet. So we decided that when the PRI turned 10 and we had a critical mass of signatories, that that was probably the right time to start bringing in some new minimum standards. Any and earlier than that, we would have pushed people away. The new standards are coming in. We will start to delist signatories. We're giving them time to be to make this change. We will work with them because, again, at the end of the day, we want to see everybody doing something. It isn't our aim to delist people. It's our aim to get them moving. And But then if they don't, they've got a period, then we will delist them. And I can imagine that over the next 10 years, our standards will continue to uh, increase as practice increases. And I think that's sometimes what people miss, that, you know, you need the practice there first. And I think the point that you made about you really need to get the norms and you need to grow the market and get everything moving Mm. first is really important. One way that the PRI seems to be doing that, um, which is really additive to the whole sort of debate uh, and discourse of responsible investment is through frameworks. I mean, we know we've seen a lot of frameworks around um, from TCFD on the climate side um, to the uh, United Nations Sustainability Development Goals um, to uh, the Just Transition. And I wanted to highlight some of the work for a second that PRI has done in this area because responsible investment isn't an affiliation, right? It's also a methodology at times. It can be approach to understanding climate issues or social issues um, or how to engage with companies? Well, I yeah, I very much see responsible investment as an investment philosophy or an investment approach. And what you see with responsible investment a lot of the time is that people start, really start, and they might start in one asset class and where they do, it'll generally be in the listed equity space. And they think, okay, well, I can think about responsible investment here because I can vote my shares. I can engage with companies. There's lots of practice that's actually there and they can follow good practice. But then as they've done that, they don't want to just stop their responsible investment practices at one asset class, they start thinking about, well, how do I do this across every asset class? And that's part of the work and the standards and the frameworks that I think PRI has been really good at working with the industry to develop, because what you do in fixed income and what you do in infrastructure, what you do in property, it's not the same because the asset class don't work the same. So we have developed lots of tools, lots of norms. I know when I speak to investors, particularly asset owners, they find things like the um, due diligence questionnaires that we've developed in a number of asset classes. In the private equity space, for example, and in infrastructure to be really useful because it starts bringing about standards and everybody knows what's expected. And we continue to do that. With the sustainable development goals, they're still relatively new and people aren't really sure about, are these investable? How do we go about investing in the SDGs? So we've been, as our first piece of work in the sustainable development goals, doing guidance educating people about what the investment case is. 
and you talked about the just transition work that we're doing. So we spend a lot of time on the issue of climate change. Obviously, climate is a really big issue. When we've talked to our signatories, it's the number one issue that's on the top of their list of things to deal with out of the very many. And we've really focused on the physical aspects of climate change. And it struck me very much that we hadn't really done a lot about thinking about the social side of climate change. So we talk a lot about in the in the investment world about stranded assets, again, from a physical point of view, but stranded assets are not just physical. They're also people. They're the people who are displaced from the jobs in the fossil fuel sector. They're the people in the communities who um, really are engaged in that community where there might be a coal mine or something that's closed down. That might not be inevitable, but that doesn't mean that you can't do the transition in a way that can try to help people, retrain them, re-educate them, get new jobs for people. Is there new investment that can happen in that community? So when we're thinking about scenario planning with companies and what they're doing over the next decade, we don't just want it to be them telling us things about their physical risk. We want them to tell us what they're doing about their workforce, the community they're in uh, as well, because you can't win the debate on climate and look what's happening in places like the United States if people feel disenfranchised and left behind. Then we see this rise in populism that's happening. People believe when President Trump says, I'm bringing back coal jobs, for example. Um, and they, they believe this story and they vote for President Trump in the, in the hope that this is exactly what he's going to do. And I can understand why people do that. And we have to do better, I think, as a community, not just investors, but investors, companies, governments need to do better about making sure that people aren't left behind and that workers aren't the losers in the climate change wars. No, I completely agree. In fact, actually, it's been a big lesson for me in my life to sort of, again, believe that it takes a long time to build norms, to build institutions that are credible. Um, but I guess what's been surprising for me in the last you know, year and a half since the elections is that it uh, takes an incredible, a very, let me take this up. What's been surprising for me over the last year and a half since the elections is that norms and institutions can be undermined by President Trump. Look what he's done with the EPA, for instance, um, in an incredibly short amount of time. That's why I think that it's really important that investors work directly with companies because governments will come and go and they can change regulations and all of those sorts of things. But if you're the owner of companies, you can still set pretty clear expectations for the company, no matter what the government uh, is expecting. And we really need to bear that, in mi- bear that in mind. I think, though, coming back to some of the issues, one of the things that I think is unhelpful about the whole language of ESG is that it silos issues into is it an E issue, is it an S issue, is it a G issue? So if you talk about climate change, for example, that we we're just talking about, people then see it purely as an environmental issue. Of course it's an E issue, but it's also a social issue. And it's also a governance issue in terms of how are boards of corporations dealing with this 
issue. Because if you've got a really great board who's thinking about the future, they will naturally be making sure that they've got the right skills and they're writing, asking all the right questions and they're doing the right things. But people do tend to stick things in buckets and that's one thing that I would really like to see us try to break down and we're trying to do more of when we're thinking about issues, about coming at them from a number of perspectives rather than just one narrow perspective. I think it's fantastic. In fact, I think that's uh, uh, one of the huge benefits from the just transition. I mean, I, I was sort of reminded by it again doing the podcast with Harriet Lamb, the CEO of of. Uh, International Alert, where she talked about doing peacekeeping in conflict-affected areas where you have these intersectional effects of climate change, of migration, and what it means for conflict in the area. But you just find these sort of overlapping um, themes or issues um, uh, that carry, you know, intense uh, repercussions where nothing is, you know, nothing can be sort of discreetly treated or siloed. Yeah, and I think one of the things about climate that will become even more of a social issue is over time, if this isn't dealt with in the right time frame, we'll see more and more climate refugees. We know that there's so many low-lying countries that are going to be affected by climate. Will the countries survive? Where will those people have to end up going? These are all significant issues. So is how are food and crops, etc., being affected by climate change and what does this mean for global food security mm. uh, so you're, you're right they're so multi-layered the issues and they do just cross over each other your mind can boggle when you actually when you start thinking about them in detail yeah. and all the different angles that you need to um, think about I think that's why this responsible investment can be sometimes so daunting for people who are, are starting out down this road which issues do we focus on where where how many look how many there are you start you get started and that's endless and endless issues and uh i know that's overwhelming for many people so this is where i always say to people you probably just need to really try to prioritize get your processes in place prioritize what's important what's really material for your portfolio but i want to go back on the framework question with regard to this because and you're absolutely right. There's so many frameworks out there. Uh, there's so many uh, with frameworks come reporting requirements. Um, and it feels like as an investor, um, there is just a growing burden, you know, and a lot of it is meaningful. Some is, you know, it just requires a lot of effort. Um, and some of it is duplicative. But uh, whether it's uh, CDP, whether it's PRI, the transparency reporting, but it feels like sometimes there's an overburden, right? How do you think that sort of converges? I think that's right. And as you're talking about responsible investment growing, I think our reporting framework and its sophistication has also grown as well. Now we're seeing more other even organisations who come to us and say, we need to get this information. Could we do it through the PRI reporting framework? Because the investors themselves will say, we don't want another framework coming up. We've got enough. So we're going to do, um, probably at the end of this year, a big review of the reporting framework. So has it reached its use-by date? Has it got too big and unwieldy? The other question that a lot of people have started asking is, 
the whole issue around impact and outcomes, and I don't mean impact from an impact investing side, I mean what is the impact of the investments that I'm making. So everything about responsible investment to date has been very process-based. So what's the process that I've got in place to do all of these things? But the measurement in terms of and what does what comes out the other side isn't there. So a lot of pension funds in particular are really wanting to report back to their beneficiaries about this is the return that we've made this year for you, but these are also all of the things that we've done and invested in, or the, and this is the good impact, the positive impact that we've had on the world. Moving past just I've done no harm. So that's another thing for us to take away and think, well, could we move our reporting framework to be more about impact now that the processes are there. And I think the more that can we can see convergence of reporting frameworks and less of them, the better. We're working with a lot of corporate reporting frameworks as well uh, around the sustainable development goals, but also around the fact that there's a million and one corporate reporting tools and frameworks. But we still have investors say to us, there's the market's awash with data but it's not actually information that's useful to us. So there's a lot of time obviously spent for people reporting on issues that just – and, start, and the, the information doesn't get used. That's just a waste. So we're trying to work out better ways of getting the data that we want um, for investors. At the end of the day, I think it's always hard though because what you know what grows out of these different reporting frameworks, etc., tends to be then organisations, and then everyone's got their sort of vested interest in keeping them going. So for us, we're trying to see if we can play an honest broker role a little bit about what can we do to get better and more meaningful data. But you're right. I mean, if you had to look ten years forward, um, and what. PRI looks like in terms of, of, you know, reflecting the next phase within responsible investment? Mm. I think that's probably right. We're probably a long way off that in terms of there's still a long way to go until good practice is embedded across all asset classes. And until, I certainly think responsible investment is entering the mainstream, but there's still a long way to go as well till it's completely in the mainstream. But that's certainly where the conversation is headed. It's much more headed into how can I show impact of what I'm doing on the real world and on the environment. Now, that might that may take another 10 years to materialise, but people are starting to turn their mind to it. And when you were talking about the sustainable development goals, some people are starting to think about that. Well, could that be a framework that you sort of take your ESG issues further? Because here's what the world set out as the most urgent issues that we need to address over the next 15-year period. So could we use that somehow to think about, well, what impact have I had? What outcome am I having in these goals? How could I report against them? And there's certainly some thinking going on on there as well. When you think about the next 10 years, though, do you think about you know PRI as an actor at the multilateral level? There have been case studies. People point to climate change and, and uh, the Paris Agreement that worked really well and smoothly because you saw this neat alignment between state actors, uh, NGOs, um, the finance industry. Um, 
and multilaterals um, to create the Paris Agreement. But in, I don't want to say all other issues, but many other issues, they somewhat become a lot more fragmented. Well, we've started to do that. So we've started to think about the fact if you're talking about responsible investment and if you look at the PRI's mission overall, PRI's overall mission is really to create a sustainable financial system. And ESG integration on itself is not going to do that. We need to work on the market as well because we're trying to be long-term investors in what are in many cases very short-term markets. And the returns and the way we, that we um, ask about returns from companies, the way that we ask them to report, the way that we incentivise both portfolio managers and companies to um, perform is all based on short-term metrics. So there's a lot of things that we need to change. So we are trying to be an actor within the system, the financial global system as well, more and more, to reach those aims. When it comes to governments, again, I think that governments come and go and they'll always come and go. And so that is why I think investors need to really embed the norms that they want within the financial system and they're getting big enough and powerful enough to do that. And we need, I suppose, governments just not to put regulations in the way that stop us from thinking more long-term. One of the things in the United States at the moment is there's a number of different things that are happening trying to wind back shareholder rights. So we have to be active with other groups in making sure that those rights are not closed off because that is because people are starting to see that institutional investors have got a lot of power and they want to start to shut it down and we can't We can't really have that. I mean, I think that it's one way of having, if you like, a bit of democracy. This is money that is being invested for everyday working people, for their retirement. It's their money. So it should be invested in a way that is going to benefit them, not that's going to harm them. And I think we can be a force for good in in the world while making returns and making sure that you can live comfortably in retirement and all of those sorts of things. And I think that that part of responsible investment, it's good to see that there's been movement there. In the early days of responsible investment, it was very much people had this misconception that it was all about giving up returns to go and do good do good things, but there'd never be any money there. It'll all be lost. All of these people didn't know what they were doing. They were all crazy, loony lefties, nutbags. <laughs> and now, you know, all the evidence shows, of course, that creating better better companies that work for everybody means that you get better returns. And if you think about risk in a more holistic way than just financial risk, if you think about externalities, if you think about the long term, you're going to be a better investor because you're using more tools to be able to make decisions, whether they're about risk or whether they're about opportunities. So to me, it's always been a bit of one of those no-brainer issues. But for a lot of people, I think that's taken a long, them a long time to understand this. Some still don't, even though there's lots of academic evidence out there to the contrary. But it's but in the main, it's really been good to see that change and that this is not really seen as just some fringe issue for some, you know, tree huggers. That it is seen as a proper investment philosophy and a way of investing money. 
So, Fiona, is there anything that you'd highlight uh, that is upcoming in the PRI in person in San Francisco? So in mid-September this year, we've got our annual conference PRI in person, and we're going to bring together 1,200 people to talk about all of the latest trends in responsible investment, covering the EDS and the G, which will be really exciting. But also going on at the same time is GCAS, which is Governor Brown, Governor of California, is running a huge climate summit, bringing all the non-state actors together. And this will be a great opportunity to have so many more investors who are there for PRI in person involved in the climate discussions and showcasing what they're doing and learning from others. So we're really excited to be able to partner with GCAS and um, try to get more and more happening in the investment space when it comes to dealing with climate change. Great. But I think the other really important issue that's linked to that is the issue of economic inequality. So one of the biggest issues facing the world today, and again, I think investors have got a role in addressing this issue. They're not the only actors. Obviously, governments have to play a big role. But investors can do things, and so we're putting out a toolkit for investors about how can they deal with the issue of inequality? How can they feed into it and play a role? So things like, as an investor, you can talk to the companies you invest in about their tax policy, because companies not paying tax does not help societies. You can also do things about executive remuneration when it's running out of control and not actually providing value to the shareholders. You can do things about making sure that there's good labour conditions in place, good minimum wages in place at the other end, that people have good safety standards, pensions, medical benefits, all of those kinds of things. You can look at supply chains. You can try to eradicate issues to do with modern slavery, with child labour. So there's lots and lots of things that investors can do. They just need to understand them and have the tools to deal with them. And that's what we hope that this toolkit will do. Great. Well, I'm... It's great to end on a more optimistic note then. <laughs> so look, it's been fascinating to hear about the work of PRI and how you're not only providing an international network for greater investor stewardship, but also advancing um, how ESG or environmental, social and governance factors affect our understanding of risk. So I'd like to thank you for your time and views today. Thanks very much, Fiona. I'm Jason Mitchell here today with Fiona Reynolds, CEO of the PRI Many thanks for joining us on Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. Thanks. You're listening to Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. I'm Jason Mitchell, Sustainability Strategist at Man Group. Thanks for joining us, and special thanks to everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash responsible dash investment or look for us on iTunes.